So let's continue this exploration. Remember from this morning, I want to go through this list, if you like, of approaches, uh, some of the approaches that could be very, very powerful for us, very, very helpful in uh, combating and overthrowing, dissolving this inner critic. so we touched on the first one, the practice of loving kindness. Some, some in the list I kind of just want to mention in passing a little bit. And so I didn't really go too much into detail with the loving kindness. And some I want to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, but the loving kindness, the meta practice, is the first one. What about mindfulness? This is the second one, mindfulness. But if you like, I want to draw out two, uh, two of the qualities present within mindfulness and kind of separate them for the sake of our purposes today. So the first one kind of comes from the meta in the sense, what does it mean for the mindfulness, for our very attentiveness to have kindness in it? In other words, that, that is, you could say, a natural quality of mindfulness. But what happens if we emphasize that a bit more? Emphasizing the quality of kindness within awareness, within attentiveness. So I think it's Ajahn Sumedho is a very well-known uh, monk, monastic teacher. And he actually defines mindfulness as affectionate curiosity. It's very good because that, that captures uh, some of the qualities that affectionate curiosity. We could say befriending. So what would it be, what would it be to bring attention to the inner critic and this whole constellation of the inner critic, this whole inner working of this, of this self-judge, and bring, bring the mindfulness to bear on that, but with a quality of befriending this personality inside, this character of the inner critic. What would that be? What would it look like? What would it mean? Sometimes if you know from other meditation sessions, we talk about, for instance, you're sitting in meditation or walking and there's body pain, pain in the knees, pain in the uh, back, whatever. And we say, Ken, is it possible to bring, uh, to get to know it, to bring the mindfulness to it in a way that's a, a, a befriending energy? So what this translates at with, with the inner critic is, can I remember to let it be there. Can we let it be there? Which will be the exact opposite of the kind of knee-jerk reaction. It's so unpleasant, it's so uh, tormenting, that we don't want to let it be there, even if we're not thinking about it. We want to very understand, we want to get rid of it. So what would it be to just see? Is it possible to let this be there? Let it do its thing. Let it spin, let it say what it needs to say or wants to say. What would that be to let it be there? What would it be if we use other language to give it space? To give it space. When it's up, to give it plenty of space. And not to kind of go along with the um, initial understandable knee jerk impulse of trying to get rid of it. Of course we're going to want to get rid of it. It's horrible. It's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare in this thing. What would it be to just see, I want to get rid of it, I feel that force in me to want to get rid of it, but I'm just going to hold back and see if I can 
open to it, give it space and let it be there. Not try and get rid of it. If I go through with that uh, reaction that wants to get rid of it, that reaction in Dharma language is basically a movement of aversion. The movement, the reactive movement to get rid of something is what we call aversion. Now, if I think about what the inner critic actually is, what is it made of? What's the stuff that it's made of? It basically is aversion, isn't it? It's a force of aversion. <coughs> in this case, aversion to ourself or to what I'm thinking or feeling or how I am or my body or my whatever. It's a movement of aversion itself. Do you see that? Yeah? So here I am with something that's aversion and I'm going to try and get rid of it with aversion. So I have aversion, I pour on aversion. What am I going to get? More aversion. It's like pouring gasoline on the fire. And that, that will be the understandable reaction, the impulse. But it's, it's probably not, not always going to be helpful. And it's interesting, if the inner critic is around, and here it is, saying its things, screaming at me, whatever it is, if I give it only a little space, if I only allow it a little space, very easily it has within it the energy and the, the momentum to kind of grow and take up all the space, all the, that little space that I give it. However, if I can give it lots of space, really find a way of being spacious around this upsurge, just this inner movement, really give it a lot of space, I'll find something very interesting, which is that the inner critic cannot take up all the space. It can't take up all that space. It doesn't have what it takes inside of it to take up all that space. It cannot there will be space around it. And then I'm in a very different position in relationship to it. Because in that space around it, it's actually possible that other qualities of heart, other qualities of mind, can come into that space. And it's not just completely jam-packed with the inner critic and the voices of, of criticism. There's space around for other qualities to flow in. So for example, Something, you've done something or forgot to do something or whatever it is and it didn't go well or whatever. And then there it comes, here it is again, on cue. The voice of the inner critic, and maybe it's screaming, maybe it's shouting, badgering you. Maybe it's hissing, maybe it's whispering, insidiously. However, whatever its manifestation uh, failed again, you can't do it. You'll never do it. You always do failure, you're a loser, etc., etc., etc. When those voices are there, there will be in the body, for example, in the body, there will be, uh, what could we say, the reverberations of hurt. Those voices land in, in the psyche. They're not just floating around without landing on anything, they land, so to speak. If I go to the body, I will actually start to feel the ouch, the pain of that. Each, each uh, criticism, each voice, each opinion, each conclusion about ourselves, there will be a pain felt, usually in the body. Sometimes it's uh, really strong, and sometimes it's very, very subtle, the pain that's felt. But it's important to connect to that, 
and to feel it, to actually feel the bodily, what's actually emotional pain felt in the body. It might be subtle. And then, kind of step two, could there be, can there be a kind of tenderness, a kind of compassion or holding, uh, a caring for, around that hurt? So here in the body, maybe in the heart center, maybe in the belly, there is this pain, this contraction. And can there be around that a kind of care, a kind of warmth that comes in to hold around it? Sometimes uh, we can bring that forth or allow that to flow around what's going on. Sometimes it actually helps not to demand that to be there, but actually just to pose it very lightly, to drop a question in, like, like, like a little bit of, of uh, fine pebbles into the water. And the question is, can there be? Can there be that Can there be some warmth around this pain? The first step is feeling the pain. The second step is just lightly to drop the question in. Can there be? Can there be a holding of this? Can there be some care around this? Uh, I don't know the technical term for that, but I call it poached egg mindfulness. <laughs> it means the yolk is the pain. You know, poached egg, it's like a bit white around it. The yolk is the pain. That's the hurt. That's the reverberations of the pain of this voice. And the white is, is some warmth that can actually come around it because of the space. <coughs> so that the mindfulness then, there is, it is mindfulness, we are being present with what is and feeling what is, but we are really trying to allow and emphasize the quality of love and compassion in the mindfulness. It's different from formal loving kindness practice. It's a kind of mixed practice, if you like. Now, to the degree that we can do that, or as we begin to do that, that's a better way of saying it, as we begin to let it be there, to give it more space, to see if there can be just a little bit, just a little bit of warmth, a little bit of holding this pain, instead of just disconnecting, actually holding the pain in it, then we can begin using the mindfulness more uh, investigatively. And this, I think, is number three. Yeah, number three. So number two is giving it space and bringing kindness into the awareness. Number three is actually using the mindfulness to investigate. And it can begin to ask, what actually is there? What actually is present when this uh, inner critic dynamic is up and running? What's there? It seems obvious I know what's there. But actually, when there's a little bit of space, I can begin to, uh, in a way, look with more clarity, look with more openness, look without the veils, look with more intimacy. What's there? Now, when I start looking, I begin to see there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it's, it's actually different for different people. That's partly what makes this inner critic a little bit complicated. It doesn't come in one manifestation. It's quite a complex animal. So as I describe some of the... Um, <clears throat> results, some of the manifestations of having it in a critic. You know, some people have some, some people have other, etc. But I may see lots of them. Begin to see lots of lots of possible uh, things that are present as part of the structure. So, for example, oftentimes when the inner critic is there, some people uh, 
And especially when it's been there for years and years and decades. It's been doing its thing, it's, we've been under its sun. Some people will look inside and they'll begin to acknowledge something a little bit more clearly. Because when we are under the thumb of this inequity, it ends up, as I said, for strangling and repressing certain of our more natural kind of outpourings, more natural expressions as human beings. Some of the most beautiful aspects of our being get strangled, suppressed, squashed. Two of these um, oftentimes get squashed, you might find. One is our self-expression, our capacity for self-expression, our freedom of self-expression and creativity. Not everyone, but oftentimes that goes with the inner critic. Because there isn't the self-respect, the self-love, um, there isn't the honouring of who we are and what we have to say and what we have to express. And there's too much fear in relationship to oneself and in relationship with other beings. So the self-expression gets squashed, the creativity gets repressed, <coughs> is one. And the other one is our capacity for genuine and deep intimacy with other human beings or another human being. And that can also, again, because of the fear, because of the lack of, of sort of inner climate of a landscape of self-love, that also gets strangled. Now it's hard to think of two kind of more deep-seated longings of the being, more deeply the needs, actually, of a human being, than to express oneself freely, creatively, express who I am in this life, and how I feel existence. And uh, my desire to be close, to be seen, and to see, and to love, and be loved. It's hard to think of two more precious movements from within the being. When these get strangled and inhibited, uh, very understandably, um, a person feels an enormous amount of frustration. If this has been going on for years or decades, it can be profoundly frustrating. There's a very small step from frustration to anger to rage. Where that frustration is actually quite close with anger and rage. Sometimes, this is all under what, what's there, what's there in the investigation. Sometimes a person looks at something and there's an enormous amount of anger, rage. Sometimes what happens when we recognize, when we feel inhibited in this way, instead of rage going outwards, it's rage going inwards, which in some mechanism actually goes into a kind of depression. And for some people, uh, the, the manifestation of rage towards oneself is actually a kind of depression. So it could go to rage or it could go to depression. Well, what would happen if in looking and uncovering this, I actually begin to, to pinpoint, ah, there's rage there, it's rage, and be very clear, instead of just this amorphous onslaught of the inner critic, it's actually, aha, rage. And I begin to feel rage as rage, feel the energy of it, feel that quality in the body. And in a way, I'm being much more specific about the different components that make up the inner critic. What happens? What then happens? Something, something can start freeing up, getting more clear, and actually start disempowering the inner critic a little bit. Because 
I, if I can do this and I can bring that spaciousness and that, that clarity of investigation through the mindfulness, I'll actually see something really, really interesting, which is, although the inner critic may have its roots in childhood, early childhood, maybe, maybe even its roots historically, before I could even speak or understand language, maybe, it's still the case I will find with careful attention that I am building it and constructing it every time it manifests. I'm building and constructing it in the present. Its roots may be historical, but every time I'm building and constructing it in the present. How? It's actually that I, I kind of glue together all its component parts. It's made of lots of different things, this inner critic. Lots of constituent parts. And somehow, the mind unwittingly glues them together. And then, uh, what I end up with is a kind of vague black cloud that's burdening me and oppressing me and haranguing me and harassing me. And it's all these subparts glued <coughs> together. But what would happen if I began, through the clarity of my to actually tease out the subparts? Ah, oh, yes, there's rage. And what's that physical sensation? And what's the hurt? And where do I feel the hurt? And maybe I feel a heaviness or a tightness in the chest. That's very specific. It's a, a subpart of this whole glued together constellation of the inner what is the texture, so to speak, in the mind when the inner critic is operating? What kinds of thoughts exactly are there? Exactly. What's the tone of voice if it's a verbal inner critic? What's the tone of voice? You get quite specific with all of this. Perhaps there's other sensations in other parts of the body that go along with it, not just in the heart area. So, did you ever have those drawing books when you were young, they were dot to dot, you would get these numbers, one, two, three, four, and you would join the dots, and, and that would make a picture of something. So, that's what consciousness actually does all day long. We join the dots of different factors within our experience to create, in this case, a monster. We join the dots, we glue it together without realizing that we're doing it. If I can begin teasing them apart through through the space that comes, a little bit, a little bit of space, a little bit of allowing, and then investigating with the mindfulness, I begin to see other individual dots here that I've joined together. And there's no blame in that. It's actually how consciousness works, whether there's an inner critic or not. It's, it's a factor of the way consciousness works. There's no blame, but it's something we want to expose and then learn to look at differently. Learn to choose, perhaps, one of these, and stay with it, focus on what would it be to give, for example, here is that pain in my heart, and what would it be to just bring a really simple, intimate, bare attention to that pain, which is listen to the tone of the voice, and just stay with that. Choose one factor, and, and really stay with that. And then perhaps another after a while. What happens then is we're not joining the dots, we're actually separating the dots. And the thing cannot kind of take that quantum leap into extra power that comes from joining the dots. Do you understand? Yeah? 
that just comes from a little bit of space and the sustaining of the mindfulness and the kind of precision, really, of the mindfulness. We're being more precise in teasing out certain qualities from the experience. number three. Remember, all, all this I'm talking about practice, practice, practice. With practice, um, these things really do begin to manifest freedom, to open up the, the sort of calcified structures and bring, bring some fluidity, bring some space. <coughs> before the mindfulness is that strong, we have the fourth one. The capacity we have to question here. Here's this, in some cases, it's actually helpful to view it as a sub-personality inside. It's like a different character inside. Although sometimes it feels like who I am. And actually to begin questioning the inner critic. So in the, in the particularly the first and the second of the, the sister fight, we talked about you know, loving kindness and bringing kindness into the awareness. You could say there are movements of the heart, or the heart opening, the heart expanding. Of course, that's so important. It's so essential to our practice. If we can soften here, everything begins to change. The heart softens, the heart opens, everything begins to soften and open. (coughs) From that place, the eyes and everything. But as much as the heart is important, we could say the head is important as well. And that's our capacity to question, our capacity to probe, our capacity to use our thinking and our intelligence, in fact. So there's heart and there's head, and they're both important. So what kind of questions might be liberating? What kind of questions might shake up and begin kind of undermining some of the power that goes with the inner critique? Well, one is, first one, one might ask, am I believing it? Am I believing it? And just to drop that in, am I believing it? Can I allow doubt to enter? So we talk about doubt as a hindrance. Uh, one of the five hindrances. Actually, doubt has a positive side, a beautiful side. Our capacity to, to be skeptical and doubt what's going through the mind. What we're believing at any time. So can I allow doubt to enter? Am I believing it? Then I might get more specific in this line of questioning. And I might say, I might ask, what am I believing? Be really clear. What am I ending up believing when this, when this uh, dynamic <coughs> of inner critic is going on? Exactly what am I believing? It might turn out to be all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Sometimes it's uh, quite a deep-seated, sometimes it's just a conclusion about myself that I may make based on a lot of different stuff that happened in the environment. I'll come back to that. Sometimes it's almost more deep-seated. I'm believing that deep down I'm bad. That there's something rotten in me. And people tell me this, and actually I know this from the past, and people say, it's just a matter of time until people find me out and they'll discover what I'm like and they'll realize that 
I'm bad deep down. And this, that kind of fear wreaks havoc uh, in one's existence. It's such a deep existential uh, wrong belief, basically, about oneself. But when that's there, it it's, has so much power wrapped up in it, so much pain wrapped up in it, so much pain. And I believe I'm bad. I cannot live in the world free of fear. When that belief is there, I'm bad, and that's hidden, that's lurking down there, or that there's something bad in me, I will be afraid of myself. I will be afraid of what comes out of me in life. I will be afraid in relationship. All of this, it, it, it's, uh, power is enormous in the way it leaks out. And similarly, you know, I've seen uh, that, that particular belief that I'm bad, it has its place in addiction, in, in the repetitive cycles of addiction, because one to believe one's bad is a kind of shame, and it's like uh, when there's shame, it's part of the re- repetitiveness of the addictive cycle. When it needs to repeat, to kind of prove the shame to oneself, which one actually can't tolerate. I've also seen it, it very interestingly with someone, uh, actually a few people with um, obsessive compulsive disorder, things like compulsive hand washing. It looks like, for a long time they believe, I need to do this because all the impurity is out there. And after a lot of investigation, they begin to realize, actually, it's that I feel impure. And somehow I'm projecting it out. It can manifest in lots of different ways. There's so many questions. There's this, keep stressing, this capacity to ask questions and be creative in the question and strong in the question. So I could also ask, and kindly, I could ask kindly, is this giving me anything? Is this pattern of the inner critic giving me anything? When it's around, what does it give me? And that's a very interesting one. Again, people are different, they find different things, but someone might find, for example, that it gives me a feeling of familiarity. It's become familiar over the years, over the decades even. I know my way around it. Painful as it is, contracted as it is, it's familiar in a territory. It actually shapes my outer life in familiar lines. And it's a place of home, in a way. It's a place of familiarity. That's really, really interesting to see. And then I could take the question further from that. That's what I discovered. Or another person, or the same person at a different time, might ask the same question, what's it giving me? And actually find that it gives me a sense of identity. Although it's a really crappy identity, it's a horrible identity, it gives me something, I know who I am. I'm the loser. I'm the failure. I'm the lousy one. And we cling better to some identity, tightly bound, painful as it is, imprisoned as it is, than no identity. Perhaps. Or a person, same question, what's it giving me? Might, might discover a belief operating that if it wasn't there, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, I wouldn't do anything, I'd be such a lazy da da da. Okay, good to see that. Is it true? Very interestingly, uh, sometimes people find that, this is an example, but it's quite common. Someone was dialoguing with the inner critic, questioning you. And 
discovered that actually the movement of the inner critic and the, the strategies of the inner critic were actually trying to protect her from embarrassing herself or making a mistake in public and so being uh, vulnerable and vulnerable particularly to rejection from others. And that is, if the self-criticism could be so strong enough and harsh enough to prevent her doing something, to repress her action, keep her constrained, then maybe she wouldn't put her foot in it and feel rejection and, and, and feeling unloved in a relationship or in a community or in, in a group or whatever. So it's actually coming, paradoxically, from this, this desire to protect us from feeling unloved, from rejection, sometimes, in some cases. But, unfortunately, it's causing more suffering in the process. More suffering than we would have if we, if we uh, actually, even if we do get some rejection. But this was interesting for her, because she saw it, and she saw it once. Sometimes, we, this is a general point about insight now, sometimes we think, Okay, I'll see something, I'll see it once, and then kind of, that's it. But rarely does insight work that way. Rarely. It's more that this glimpse of something becomes then a platform, a seed, for future interactions with the inner critic. But sometimes I see something once, but it's around the inner critic, or around who knows what, impermanence could be anything. And that's enough. And just be mindful that inside comes, but I mean, but I've almost finished. Maybe. Pretty rare. Pretty rare. It's more that we take this insight and we put it in the consciousness the next time as a way of looking, as a way of relating. So, next time the inner critic came up and she began questioning it and she began dialoguing it, which we'll talk about in a second, and she could ask it, she could actually preempt and ask. Are you feeling uh, afraid? Are you feeling um, that, that there's some threat that you need to protect me from? And actually turn towards it, almost like holding out an olive branch to the inner critic <coughs> with some understanding. Just see, is that going on? And when you hold out an olive branch, it's a gesture, it's a movement of softness, of opening. What happens when we bring softness and opening towards something hard? Usually softens and opens itself. So in this movement, in the, her capitalizing on a past moment of insight, is starting to use that as an actual way of practicing in the future. Okay, a very powerful way to open up the whole structure, to dissolve it, and actually discover a whole new sense of herself. A whole new vantage point on the inner critic of stability, of strength, of spaciousness, clarity, different sense of itself. That's a general point about insight wrapped up in there. We need to kind of what we see through grace or whatever, then that, that we need to start using. Using it like, like a muscle, like a, a way of looking. So it's possible not just to question it, but also to dialogue with the inner critic and actually begin um, talking to it as if it was a, a separate character. So sometimes it's very fruitful to look at this as if it is a character inside, and sometimes it's not, you know, we, do, we don't do that. We see it as a structure of thoughts, which I'll get to. 
But something about dialoguing with it, actually talking with this energy, with this manifestation, makes a huge difference. So when, in this example I just gave, when she began to be able to ask it, are you feeling afraid? You know, it's actually like bringing the energy of kindness into the dialogue and actually beginning to understand what is motivating the inner critic, beginning to get to know it through dialogue. This inner critic, it gains its power, or rather it's given power to us um, by virtue of it remaining vague and shadowy. When we dialogue with it, we can get very specific about it. We can really begin understanding aspects of it, or how it's thinking, so to speak, how it's operating. And it does not remain vague when we dialogue that way. It doesn't remain shadowy that way. When it's just a vague, shadowy force, we just, we, that's what we feel. There's just a black cloud there, and we're just <coughs> doing this. Looking the other way, cowering from it, battered down from it, and that not looking at it, we're not being specific, we're not opening it up, and it, its power is in its vagueness, in its kind of cloudiness, if you like. So if I can turn to it and help it to be specific by actually talking, like by dialoguing. And so, for example, what exactly, exactly, exactly is being judged? It says, you're a jerk, you're this, you're that, whatever, but what exactly is being judged? Exactly. One of the beautiful things about dialoguing as well is you can slow it down and take it at the pace that's most helpful. Sometimes the inner critic is whirring around so fast, it's like a, a vortex that we're in, with all these onslaught of thoughts. It's all too fast, we can't even barely keep up with it. Dialoguing can slow it down, take things at the pace that we can go and digest and understand and respond. Other times the inner critic feels like it's just stuck, like a block of cement, there's no movement there at all. The dialoguing again, it, it begins to introduce some dynamism, some, some movement into, into it. So there's many uh, avenues that we can dialogue with it uh, along, but one in particular is really important. <coughs> can I ask it, or if it's difficult to actually dialogue with it, could I actually just imagine, imagine a scenario. Okay, so I begin to understand, it's demanding this of me, that I achieve X or I achieve Y. And I actually ask him, oh, okay, so it's this that you're judging, it's, it's you want me to achieve X, to be with the breath perfectly, to be whatever it is. If I achieved X or Y, would you then be satisfied? Ask him. Now, you might say, yes, but stay there, stay right there, hang out there, because it's probably lying. <laughs> it's almost definitely lying. And ask it, really? Really? We need to probe it a little bit. With time, we will see that it doesn't tell the truth, it's irrational and unhelpful. It's actually an impossible uh, tyrant. If I can pursue this question and, and kind of poke at it, probe it with the question, I'll see that I'm more intelligent than it. 
I, you, are more intelligent than your inner critic. Most definitely. This is quite a rare thing in practice, to actually use, use the intelligence. We talk a lot about the heart, it's enormously important, of course. But what would it be to actually use my thinking mind, the energy of my intelligence, to duel with this inner critic? And to be relentless in that. After all, it's relentless. It just keeps going, haranguing. What would it be to just keep pushing with the question? It says this, you say, well, what about dinner? You keep going, really? Would you be satisfied? Just keep. So there's a kind of strength in our uh, relationship with the thinking mind. That's difficult, because oftentimes for, for meditators, we tend to think of the thoughts as an enemy, and the whole thinking mind is something to be very, very suspicious of, understandably. But in time, it's actually possible to use the thinking, and have it be firm and energized and really our ally, really our ally. <coughs> I was going to give an example, but I think I'll just move, I think that's pretty clear. Is that, yeah? Okay, I'll move on to the last one. our sense of power, reclaiming our sense of power as human beings. When the inner critic, when the self-judge is, is up and running and, and harassing us, we feel devoid and drained of our power. We feel very weak, very under the heel of what's going on. So how, would it, how could we possibly reclaim this power? It's so important. Sometimes quite rare, unfortunately. When it, Way in for an example. Some time ago, I was working with someone. He's a long-term practitioner, decades in fact, probably long, longer than I have, I think. <clears throat> and he was uh, or is exploring a different tradition of um, sh- shamanic, uh, shamanic spirituality and a shamanic journey, etc. Now, in that tradition, they're encouraged to give a name to these characters they find inside themselves. And this inner critic, and he looked inside and he was working with it, and the name he came up with was the Axeman. <laughs> so he called this character the Axeman, and they're encouraged to actually feel into what does it feel like to be the Axeman? What does it feel like from, from that end? Not to be just on the receiving end of it, but actually to inhabit the Axeman. To get inside him, so to speak. And the guy had a hooded head and all that. Feel how he feels and sees and thinks and see from his eyes and out of his head, so to speak. After you've done that for a while, then actually imagine some other inner character uh, coming to your aid, if you like. So in this case, he bound up the axeman and gagged him, and then a giant eagle came and swooped down and carried off this bound and gagged inner critic and deposited him off on a rocky uh, mountain crag a, a, long, a long way away. That, that was quite interesting because he had taken time to feel into the axe man, but then I was like, well, could you also actually feel into the eagle? Could you feel, because the eagle there is an embodiment, 
and that's a very key word, embodiment of power, of potential, of strength. What would it be to actually feel your way into ego and feel that in the body? Feel that strength and that dignity, if you like. If I take the time and I really well on that and really do, what is it to find, could, could be something else if you're working with imagery, you can do it without imagery, I'll go into that. To actually feel that power inside myself and realize that 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 power wrapped up in that is easily dwarfs, easily outpowers the power of the critic. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Now eventually, that's just one way in. Eventually, we want to feel, it's not the ego's power, it's my power. It's my power. And I can feel that and have access to my power. I don't mean power over another human being. I mean power in myself, my strength, my rootedness, my uh, vitality, my life force. Partly I'm mentioning this because this person was, is a long-term practitioner. And we, he was, in ensuing sessions, he, he was talking about accessing this power at times and feeling himself come into access and out of access of this power. And so I said, well, can you, can you find it now? Can you, can you feel that power now? And so he shut his eyes and he went inside and did this meditation thing and went inside and power. And I was sitting there with him. And I could tell that going inside through the meditation was going away from the power. He was losing power via his meditation. And partly saying this to those of you who have been meditating a long time, that sometimes we can, uh, meditation can become something for us, like anything else, that we're actually losing certain qualities or access to certain qualities via the meditation. It doesn't have to be that way. But in this case, that's what was going on. And he needed other routes into the power. So for me, that's very interesting. What over the years, if I'm, what over the years am I making of my spiritual practice with my meditation? in a way that might be not serving me to the best, not opening up my fullness and my potential. If we think about how does, I just want to briefly, this could easily be a whole talk, but how, does, how do we reclaim our power? Remember, when the inner critic's strong, we feel like we have no power. It has all the power and we're just squashed into the ground. We feel powerless in relationship to this. So one way that the power re-manifests is actually going back to what I said earlier about the inner rebel. We feel the onslaught of the inner critic. The inner rebel, if you like, is a kind of manifestation of our power. It's our life force, our vitality, our uh, chutzpah. Do you know what chutzpah is? <laughs> Do you know what is? <laughs> our our uh, strength, you know, our courage. And it comes up in this way as a kind of, it, it doesn't know what it's fighting, but it's the fighting spirit. So sometimes in this no, no, it's like setting boundaries with someone. You just, I've had enough of this, this is not okay, and one sets a no, and in that no is power. And one feels it, and it's different from anger, it's out of control. There's something harnessed, harnessed, 
We're harnessing the vitality, harnessing the life force. It's very direct and it's very potent. It's not um, uh, destructive and kind of frittering in different directions like, like anger usually is. Something transformative in it. I have to feel it in the body. And I feel it. Start to feel it in, in the belly and in the chest and in the legs and in the limbs. And I have to feel it in the body to absorb it and to, and to uh, have more and more access to it. Uh, so it might come through the saying no to the inner critic, it might come through the inner rebel, and I have to kind of feel my way into the quality of the inner rebel, maybe dialogue with the inner rebel, and find that energy, and, and access that energy, begin to own that energy, or may come through the ego or whatever other imagery one has. But I have to feel it in the body. That's one way. Another way is almost the opposite. Uh, sometimes we gain our power, if we go back to the earlier ones on the list of the five, we actually gain it through opening the heart, through loving, through embracing the inner critic. Because I lose my power through, through the battle sometimes. It's almost the opposite. Sometimes there's a way that I one gains one's sense of power, re-accesses the sense of power. It's almost just through the energetics of the body, through uh, harmonizing those energies. And that's where, going back to some of the breath meditation stuff we were talking about with the group this morning, actually when that comes into alignment, there is a natural, healthy sense of power, wholeness. When I open to the totality of who I am, and in my body with that, the power comes, centeredness. There's actually many more, but one, in fact, also, as I've already mentioned, is the thinking. That if I can learn how to use the thinking and my intelligence and keep probing and answering back and pushing, asking difficult questions, I actually gain power through my intelligence, through my thinking mind. That's very unpopular in the Dharma at the moment in the West, because so we tend to think of thoughts being <coughs> I also gain power through desire, and I'm not going to go into that. If I have the right relationship with desire. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there for now, and I'm going to go into some of the other lists uh, just later today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.